Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Hello and welcome to All the Things. I am Monique Dusan. And I am Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. And this is the show where we talk about all the things related to God, the Bible, and real life. And we are kind of continuing the conversation from last week's show. We talked to Dr. Mark David Hall at from Regent University. Yeah, about religious freedom. And boy, there was a lot of lot of energy, a lot of questions that a lot came of thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, came up. I think we're gonna have to maybe get a few more guests in here to continue that conversation and continue to tackle that topic. It is such an important conversation looking at things like the separation of church and state or, you know, what what jurisdiction does the state or the federal government have over religious institutions? When can we worship? When can we not? Does the Constitution or the federal government have any jurisdiction to tell us that? And what is the difference between the freedom to worship and the freedom of religion? So many good thoughts. In yeah, show. or even just at the end there, it was like, how do we even define what a religion is? Yeah. And, you know, when um, what I call satire religions start becoming federally recognized institutions, it's all very confusing. I still have a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. So, but we, uh, this week, are going to kind of continue that discussion in a way, is talking about some of the practical realities that religious institutions are facing in an age of a lot of woke activism. Yeah, especially Christian institutions. You know, we have a, a special, you know, kind of... Yeah, and we're, this is something we're going to get into, is what other religions, you know, are impacted mm-hmm. by woke activists, because it, 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 it impacts Christians, but it also impacts a few other kind of streams of religion, especially when it comes to talking about definitions of marriage sexuality, um, the transgender conversation, even what is the distinction between male and female sports issues. Uh, This is just an increasingly important topic that in particular, I think I'm looking at in this conversation is helping our churches. A lot of churches have schools and preschools connected to them. So this is not just a conversation for big institutions. I'm thinking of somebody like our friend Jeremy Bannister, who has a small preschool at his kind of mid-sized church, yeah. you know, there in New Mexico. It 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 really is um, getting more tricky in an age of a lot of hostility of how do we navigate all that? Yeah. And as it gets more tricky, we're thankful for, um, you know, institutions and people like Nathan Berkeley, who we're going to have on in a minute, and the Religious Freedom Institute for paving a way and going before us to be able to help us think through what are the legal, you know, steps that you can take early to be able to protect your organization. How do you think about some of these things? We have to, you know, recognize that we don't just have to be at the whim of every, you know, maybe progressive person who comes in and wants to challenge us on something. And, you know, there are protections and ways that we can think about things and protect ourselves early so that we are prepared rather than trying to play catch up. Yeah, that's good. And some people might remember the name Religious Freedom Institute. We had on Nathan's boss, 
a few weeks ago. Dr. Eric Patterson came on and talked to us about just war yeah. theory. And um, so glad to have Nathan Berkeley. He's the communications director at the Religious Freedom Institute on the show. Welcome, Nathan. Krista Monique, thanks very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Glad to have you. Yeah, well, maybe we can just start by having you tell us a little bit more about the Religious Freedom Institute and the work that your team is doing there. Sure, sure. So we're based in Washington, D.C. Um, you can kind of look out our conference uh, room window and see the Capitol Dome. So it's a wonderful location. And um, at RFI, what we try to do is we we strive to uh, secure religious freedom for everyone everywhere. We really do have kind of a global objective in that regard. Uh, we focus heavily on our work uh, in the United States. So kind of most of what we do is right here at home, trying to deal with the emerging challenges to religious freedom. But we also work uh, substantially in key areas like the Middle East and North Africa, Nigeria, uh, Southeast Asia, Europe, and and um, and elsewhere. So we are active in in many other regions. And basically, what we try to do is we try to equip current and future religious freedom leaders. So this is dealing with university students, graduate students, law students, trying to equip them with an understanding of the true meaning and value of religious freedom for individuals and for society. Um, but then we're also trying to equip you know current leaders, leaders of religious nonprofit organizations that we'll talk about later today. Um, leader, policymakers, scholars, other religious leaders. So that equipping function is core to who we are. Um, but then we're also heavily involved in kind of being a convener. The challenges surrounding religious freedom today are enormous. No organization can do it by themselves. So we partner with amazing organizations, public interest law firms that kind of deal with stuff happening in the courts. Um, and then we also deal with other think tanks and centers at universities, at Christian and other universities around the country um, to try to have a force multiplier effect and kind of be a hub for religious freedom action, um, again, in the United States and in select regions around the world. Now, when people hear the word religion, especially Christians, we tend to mm -hmm. think Christianity. But you just said that you work with Christian and other you know, mm -hmm. institutions, and you were referring to the university, does the RFI or the Religious Freedom Institute work with other institutions or other religions, actually? And if so, why not just focus on the Christian religion? Why be sure. so broad or open? Yeah, well, I mean, and we we do more than that, even. We have, I mean, most of our staff, just to be frank, most of our staff are Christians. And, um, but we do have, uh, we have a Muslim on staff. Um, we have on our advisory board uh, persons of other faith traditions, uh, Hindu, Jewish, and, and otherwise. So we have even kind of formally within RFI represented, uh, we have we have other faith traditions that are who are at the table. Um, and then in terms of partner organizations, yes, we also kind of coordinate and and collaborate with many other uh, individuals who are um, you know are at there's a. Uh, a university in California, Zaytuni University, that's headed by one of our advisory board members. That's uh, a Muslim university. We also have um, board members who are um, who are of the Jewish faith and are Jewish scholars of natural law. So we we have many that we try to collaborate with. But I'll I'll put it like this: at RFI, we don't have a starting point for religious freedom, um, in which we argue that religious freedom is important because all religions are equally true. 
none of us believe that. We all take our faith very, very seriously. And and for many of us understand, and I, I'm an evangelical Christian, we understand the claims of our faith to also be truth with a capital T. So it's not that religious freedom is important because all religions are equal in truth. None of us believe that. It's that all persons are equal in dignity and they have the right by virtue of that dignity or should have the right to pursue answers to ultimate questions. Ultimate questions about the nature of God, the nature of human flourishing, where we come from ultimately and and where we're going and that sort of thing. And so they have the right to seek answers to these questions and to live in accord with what they find in them. And they shouldn't in that process be subject to legal coercion, to cultural intimidation or to violence. And so it is that human dignity that rests at the core of why we think religious freedom is important, not because all religions are equal in truth. Go ahead and break it down, Nathan. I was going to follow up with another question because I was like, wait a minute, how does this work? You know, like, what are the the foundational tenets and principles that we can all get to sure. the table? You done broke it all the way down, Nathan Nate. In, in fairness, we get this question and we should get this question, especially from Christians. So what I hear you saying is that you guys all come to the table to defend the religious freedom because of the dignity, value, and worth of the human to be able to seek some of the foundational questions and answers that are common to all people. Exactly. Exactly. That's that's right. Now, I do want to take a step further with Christians in particular, because Christianity, not surprisingly, if you look at history, has left an indelible mark in a unique way, a distinct way on Western civilization. Religious freedom as a concept has emerged and taken legal and kind of cultural form in Western civilization in ways that it hasn't in quite the same way in other regions of the world. There's a reason why that is. If you look at the New Testament, and I'll just say this very, very, you know, kind of basically and foundationally, you have disciples who are meant to take the gospel into the world. They're to proclaim it freely, and hearers of that gospel are meant to receive it freely. There, there is meant to be no coercion in the spreading of the gospel. There is meant to be no violence used in the advancement of the gospel. All I'm saying is at the heart of Christianity, you find implicitly at, at the very least <clears throat> grounds for religious freedom. And you're defining religious freedom just so that everybody's on the same page as the freedom to pursue or the the freedom of pursuit of a religion so that you're not forced <laughs> to or coerced to believe something that maybe isn't true to your particular set of values. Exactly right. And in fact, a key part of religious freedom is the right of exit, the right to exit one religion and go into another faith community or even the right to exit religion altogether. And so that that right of exit is a key part of religious freedom. And I know there seems like maybe a paradox or a tension at the heart of this, because what I'm not saying is there isn't actual truth to be found about the nature of reality and the nature of God. But what I am saying is uh, that force, coercion, violence, manipulation, intimidation ought not be ways that just human societies go about deciding what is true and what's not. That's super helpful and uh, ties in well to things that we were exploring last week about the Great Commission is that if we're going to be a people who go out and preach the gospel, there has to be that the value of religious freedom and kind of this principled pluralistic model is it allows people to come into a religion and to exit a religion 
without coercion or punishment. Um, and so that, to me, is a strong part of the case for the pluralistic approach to, to religious freedom. And so that that's very helpful. Um, so let's let's also address another concern I think people are going to have coming into this conversation because there are some voices out there in evangelicalism who are saying, look, re- religious organizations are not being targeted by progressive activists. That's just an overreaction. Um, there, it's ridiculous. It's a persecution complex. It's not happening. Um, this is just a bunch of Christian nationalists crying wolf. So paint us a picture a little bit there of, is it a real concern that progressive activists are wanting to come into Christian organizations for the purpose of undermining or or fundamentally transforming them? I think that to deny that this is happening and that it's happening in such a broad and and sort of um, kind of multi-sector way in our society is is to be burying your head in the sand. I mean, if you look at K, Christian K through 12 education, if you look at um, faith-based foster care and adoption, if you look at um, Christians in healthcare, and I mean specifically hospitals and clinics, Christian pregnancy resource centers. Um, you know, if you look at uh, Christian small businesses, especially in that do provide services in the wedding industry, I want you to think about how vast and um, how broad the swath of American life is in what I just named in those institutions. And I don't even know, I might've missed Christian universities and colleges. I mean, there are Christian institutions in every one of those areas who have been targeted with public smear campaigns, with aggressive government administrative action, applying non-discrimination laws in particular uh, around sexual orientation and gender identity, and then lawsuits. So if you kind of take all of these different means of activists, of progressive you know, radicals attacking Christian institutions in these ways, um, this is happening all the time. Uh, and and it, it would be impossible to sort of number all of the institutions that have been have been targeted in, the, in this way. Or if you did, it would be a very, very big number. So uh, for someone to, to deny that it's happening um, is for someone to deny kind of reality on the ground. Now, there's a link that I'm going to have Bob show on the screen here. It's a website called the thereap.org. And this is an actual entity that calls itself religious what does that say my religious exemption, exemption accountability project yeah accountability project which i find that wording very interesting but this is an institution that is of a religious orientation and seems to be christian influence i would call it a christian progressive organization that is trying to to target to some degree um, institutions that hold to a more traditional or orthodox view of marriage and sexuality. So they see themselves right on their website as helping the marginalized from abuse, what they call abuse, discrimination, and hardship. And part of their project involves accountability for 
institutions that hold to a traditional view of marriage and sexuality. And they, they do see themselves as coming from a Christian point of view of sorts. So this does seem to be out there, um, these, this, this kind of ethos is out there about uh, noticing the differences between these two streams even in Christianity. Perhaps you could comment on that. Yeah, I, I think it's really important to characterize what they're doing in the way that you did. And you're taking seriously the mission that they understand themselves to have. And I'm um, just disparaging people when we think they're wrong in profound ways. Well, one, it's it's not a way that Christians should ever conduct themselves. So I, I appreciate the fact that we're taking seriously the project that they think they're undertaking. Um, but what I will say is, in effect, what they're trying to do and they operate in two kind of ways. One is this massive class action lawsuit that they filed against the Department of U.S. Department of Education to, and I'll try to be as, as simple as I can in describing this, to cut off federal funding from Christian universities and colleges that maintain traditional views on marriage, sexuality, and the nature, the natural distinctions between male and female, and universities that kind of put those beliefs into practice on their campuses. And so they're um, and the biggest way that they're trying to do that is is to say that these universities are violating uh, nine, Title IX, which which deals with discrimination on the basis of sex, uh, which has then been expanded to include sexual orientation and gender identity. But they're saying that basically having rules at an institution of of higher education that you know conforms to Christian teachings on sexual morality, those rules just in having them is a mode of discriminating against persons who identify as LGBTQ. And that's so that's part of the problem. The other thing that REAP is doing is trying to train students on these campuses to kind of infiltrate them and undermine them from the inside. And so you have REAP targeting them externally with funding, mostly again through federally backed student loans, which would be taken off the table for Christian universities if they were to prevail in this lawsuit but also training students, sometimes even students in the application process, knowing that they're going in to dis be a disruptor and to undermine the institution, um, but also just training students who are already there who maybe end up changing their mind on a number of things in the course of just being a student at, at one of the universities. So internally and externally, they're targeting them. They're targeting these Christian universities. But what I want to point out is there's a deeper issue going on here, which is that now it is often considered a form of harm to refuse to affirm persons in their, their sexual expressions. And this deeper issue is one, I think, that, that just has to be um, kind of dealt with head on because it's confusing for people. People don't want persons who understand themselves to be LGBTQ to be discriminated against. But what they've done with this word discrimination is basically take it and apply it in a particular way that refusing affirmation, refusing, you know, having certain codes of conduct around sexual expression on these campuses, just the mere fact of it being on the books based on Christian teachings is a form of harm that must be remedied. And um, and that's, well, one, it gets the nature of the human person wrong because we, we are not our, our actions. Um, but it also takes Christian morality and and um and it, it imperils it. It just it basically says that its mere existence is a form of offense that must be remedied by the law. And um and that's a real problem for Christian universities that want to remain faithful 
to historically orthodox teachings on matters of sexuality that have been true for Christians for for 2,000 years. Nathan, is this like the new long march through the institutions or is it something, you know, bolder where people are just like coming in? You know, when when I think about my university, Biola, you know, where I went and did my undergrad, I can recall professors who were there then who upheld a very progressive worldview and you know, they they flew under the radar and they did what they needed to do, you know, talking to students and things like that. But it was it wasn't it wasn't institutional. It wasn't across the entire, you know, body of Biola. When we think of an organization like REAP and sending, you know, students in with a specific agenda, knowing that a, a, a conservative university would not, you know, affirm pronouns and things like that. Is is this the new long march through the institutions where students need to sit and just, you know, begin targeting really slowly? Or is this hurry up, go in and create havoc? Yeah, I, I do think it's the latter at this point. Uh, I would put it like this. I mean, you have you have students and, and you know, some others like REAP who are trying to empower them to go in and not not be free to be dissenters in these spaces, but to change the spaces themselves. I mean, what it's it's losing sight of the fact that, you know, Christian universities and other Christian institutions, they want to operate in accord with, you know, Christian convictions. They want to actually have integrity in all that they do. And um, these these students are claiming the institutions often for themselves, like saying this is this is our university. This is my university. And um, and they're they have no intention of kind of respecting what the institution is and, and what it stands for. So I think there is a general impatience in all things social change in our society at this point and and a real acceleration of kind of what people are willing to put up with with what period of time. And um, and so now everything has to happen now. Um, The whole idea that you would be kind of forbearing and try to work slowly through, you know, formal channels to make change. That's out the door. I mean, it's it's. It's time for protest. It's time to blow things up. It's time for revolution. And by blow things up, I generally don't mean actual violence, but it's time to like disrupt to the point where you just kind of undermine the whole thing. Tear it all down is common refrain for people. And they're not they're not thinking through, you know, kind of the how radical, you know, some of these ideas are. But or maybe they are and that they're doing exactly what they intended to do. Um, But there is a real kind of velocity to this. Uh, and an impatience that I think is different than in the past. And from what I can tell, like, for example, there's a website that when I went on to the REAP website, it seems that one of their kind of funding organizations or or that they're attached to is something called soulforce.org. And there's quite a lot of interesting wording on this website. It says, we are queer people reclaiming our spirits from weaponized religion, learn more about Christian supremacy and what it takes to sabotage it. Now, for Monique and I, as people who are interacting on the daily, on the critical social theories, many people might not be aware, although we have talked about it many times across our platforms, about one particular critical social theory, which is this idea of, of religious critical theory critical or religion or critical religion theory and it looks at christianity as being 
the oppressor or the majority or the dominant religion. And it seems that the soulforce.org website has been shaped, at least in some of its linguistics and vocabulary, by the critical social theories. And so targeting Christianity in particular, Christian supremacy, um, which is sounds a little adjacent to white supremacy, which we all know is a you know, is is something that nobody wants to be called that label. But whiteness and Christian privilege are seen as clearly dangerous on on this website. Yeah, and what I will say about some of this, and sometimes I see white Christian supremacy now kind of put together. Um, we have these words that get thrown around. They're they're structural, you know, the word structural racism, systemic racism, whiteness, white nationalism, Christian nationalism um, are some other formulations. And um, one thing that I think is very frustrating about all of it is is a lack of any definitional clarity. I mean, you just kind of throw these things around and um, they they sound they sound bad. They're meant to be sort of uh, rhetorical punches as opposed to some things that that carry real meaning. Um, one challenge is, though, we have this period of transition in the United States, and it's been ongoing for for decades, where we can clearly see, and and any historian could look at this, going back to the founding, that Christianity, in important ways, set down kind of a a moral and um, anthropological horizon for for American society. I mean, it, it set markers for what for what is considered um, what's considered good and true, and and so forth. And so as we move out of that time uh, and we're transitioning to um, kind of, well, a time in which there are not shared understandings or common understandings about what, um, even what the nature of the human person is, let alone morality and and difficult questions in that area. And so you almost have these people who are saying there's something called Christian supremacy that still holds Um, at, at this very time of transition when that Christian horizon is really being rejected in some profound and fundamental ways. So they they just seem somewhat to me out of touch, but I hesitate sometimes, frankly, Krista, to understand exactly what they're trying to say. And and so, because I'm, I'm against racism, I'm certainly against white supremacy, I'm certainly against, um, you know, kind of harming people in the name of religion. Um, but of course, that's, never what they're actually talking about when I hear examples given under these categories. And so I'm left wondering how I should even proceed in responding to them. And um, and for that reason, and maybe some of that is actually intentional, the intentional obfuscation of what they're actually meaning. Um, but I find that en- endlessly frustrating, and I'm never quite sure how to proceed. Well, since you're, yeah, I think you're raising a lot of really good points. And, and you know, I have, Bob has a clip here. I'm going to play this little two-minute clip from one of their podcasts, but let's just hear it in some of their own words of how they talk and then talk about that a little bit. And then I want to shift gears to, you know, what are some general steps that Christian institutions can begin to take in light of this climate? But let's hear the clip. At the age of 23, 12 years after I first picked up that Life Application Bible, I entered what would be my final training camp as a Blackstone Legal Fellow at Alliance Defending Freedom, 
the most powerful legal advocacy organization for white Christian supremacy in the world. And it almost killed me. Paul is now an attorney and activist who, for the past 12 years, has been trying to make sense of how he went from being a little homeschooled kid living on a farm to a dangerous weapon of the religious right. What I have learned is this. Among the greatest threats to human rights and democracy in the United States are the thousands of predominantly white religious schools, colleges, and seminaries that provide an unregulated ecosystem in which white Christian supremacy thrives and marginalized people are abused. Just to set this up, we want you to know that we put together this podcast to uncover the very real political threat posed by the educational pipeline of white Christian supremacy. These educational ecosystems play a major role in the culture wars we see erupting today around things like Black Lives Matter, critical race theory, don't say gay, and anti-trans legislation. We aren't born with racist or transphobic beliefs. They are taught to us by our families, our churches, and our schools. The pastors and priests who preach against homosexuality, abortion, and Black Lives Matter are taught these messages at predominantly white religious schools. These schools are often controlled by a religious hierarchy or board of directors composed of older white Christian men or those they have taught to think like them, such that voluntary changes in racist or homophobic policies and beliefs are extremely difficult and rare. Okay, so that's just a little sample from that podcast that I thought kind of explained a little bit more of their point of view in, in their own words. And there we hear them talk about um, people coming from our position of the traditional marriage position as being um, abusive or abusers. It's a threat. They characterized it as being white Christian supremacy. And in particular, at the end there, you hear them talk about um, the boards are staffed with older white Christian men and those who, I don't know, have trained under them or think like them. So there's definitely a clear association that they're trying to make to the problem is white people, Christians, the tradition, people to traditional marriage, these are seen as threats and abusive and white Christian supremacy. Yeah. It's it's almost synonymous now. And we brought this out a couple of years ago, but, um, you know, even with that Smithsonian infographic where they were defining whiteness, really whiteness had so much to do with Christian ideals that it's hard not to think that they wouldn't at some point collapse into the same funnel. Yeah. So what we're talking about here again is is the technical term for it is critical religious studies. That's or critical religion theory. Critical, critical religion, religion theory studies. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if you want to jump in with any more comments on that, Nathan. Yeah. Well, I mean, the observation I have is simply this: if you look at these evangelical spaces um, that they're raising, you know, most alarm about, they they do tend to be not exclusively, but but um, majority of white people uh, populating these spaces. So I guess that's really all they're trying to say, because when I think about the work that whiteness is doing or 
the word white in terms of white Christian supremacy, what it's actually doing, it's basically just a way to say um, these people are doing, saying, and espousing things I disagree with. And that's why I'm just trying to get at kind of what are they really getting at? Because when I hear the examples of what they're trying to give at real Christian institutions of of advancing, of, of um, putting forth racist ideas or putting in place racist policies of some sort, uh, I just don't see any actual examples. I'm not surprised by that at all, by the way. I wouldn't think I would find any actual examples. But so when there, when it comes time to be specific, what I see is it's just a way to add emphasis, a way to um, add a rhetorical punch to what they're what they're trying to say. Because one of the worst things you could be called is a white supremacist. So let's call the Christians who disagree with us uh, white supremacists in some way. It's I, I suppose effective rhetorically. But I just don't know how it intersects with reality in any actual Christian institutions that I'm aware of. I think that's such a good point of, you know, it it skirts around truth and it skirts around reality. There is no objective reality truly in this type of framework, because when we think about truth, truth comes regardless of color. And so a question that, you know, as historic Christians, we would ask is, well, is it true? Is it true that racism is at play? And if it's not true that racism is at play, what what's really the, the harm being done simply because it's by people with, you know, white skin? I would ask the question conversely of, well, are you also afraid then that if you produce an institution with people of all brown skin that we would also run some of these same errors or is it not a concern because now we have marginalized people in these place in these positions of power and those marginalized people will be able to you know objectively not participate in racism or you know sexism genderism whatever that is sure sure whatever the and word is slip in my mind a lot of defining our terms would would go a long way, and I think there's lots of interest uh, for for many progressive uh, radicals in this area to um, to again be imprecise and to to obfuscate what they're actually trying to say. Because um, to define terms would leave us uh, with with a lot more conversations to be had. And to your point about truth being not being dependent on who says it, not being dependent certainly on the race of who says it. And that's just something that all Christians need to always bear in mind. You know, what is so, true is independent of who says it. Well, you know what? This is a good place to take a break to hear from our partners at Impact 360. Here we go. I'd always heard in church, like, go and make disciples. And they'd always say that verse. And I'm like, I don't really know what that looks like at all. And then when I got here, they taught me like everything I was curious to know about, like progressive Christianity and how to talk to an atheist and how to go about witnessing to someone without it being overly preachy or insincere. And that helped me so much. It's just been such an awesome week, you know, going through these questions and really diving into them. And not just with me, but other Christians. It's not like an individual thing. It's a together thing. We're really strengthening our relationship with the Lord personally, but also together. We have been given the greatest gift. We have been given life. And Propel has really made me realize once again how important it is to share that gift with 
the millions of people out there who don't have that gift that's just ripe for the taking. And once again, we want to draw your attention to the program of Propel. In particular, it's their summer camp. It's a one-week experience for high school students. Go check it out now on the Impact 360 website. I want to kind of get into now some of the steps that Christian institutions can take. I think defining your terms is a is a critical step, and I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk about that. But if we're going to think about helping our institutions be able to persevere, on, on the one hand, we've got legal challenges to the nature of religious freedom. It's fairly embedded in the First Amendment. We talked a lot about that last week. But now we're thinking about, well, what steps do our Christian Christian institutions need to take in order to kind of prepare for these sort of progressive activists to come into our institutions? What What do you think that their goal is? Do they want us to just change our policies? Like, what do you think their goals really are? Well, I think many activists that take a, a much broader view of, of what their project really is about is um, it their goal is to push these institutions um, out of American public life. They are, if you think about what a religious institution is, and, and certainly including Christian organizations, they are visible manifestations of faith in society. They are intended to take religious convictions and put them into concrete form in a way that they can act in society and be acted upon in a way that they're visible to their neighbors around them. And so when these institutions represent ideas or reflect ideas that some woke ideologues vehemently disagree with, their mere presence becomes a form of offense. And so I think the easiest way to answer that is they just want these institutions to either change, to be unrecognizable um, to, to what they are right now, meaning change so much that they cease to be what they once were, or to vacate the premises, just get them out of public life so they no longer have to be this visible manifestation of ideas uh, that they disagree with. So what are some steps, and generally speaking, I'm, I'm sure that there's specifics that we don't have time to drill into, but what are just kind of some broad steps that Christian institutions can take in order to prepare for this kind of progressive activist penetration? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in two categories in this respect. One is think about how to be consistent and transparent. And so all I mean by that is think about all areas of a Christian organization, okay? And this again, this is whether it's a social service organization, whether it's a university, a K through 12 school, a hospital, whatever the case might be, what would it look like to achieve full alignment with your religious mission, your religious character, your religious identity, full alignment with those convictions across all areas of the organization. And that would be mean from your HR policies, the way you recruit and hire employees, the way you even think about kind of um, the expectations you have around uh, employees, the way you think about the kinds of health insurance you offer, and then also the way that you offer your goods or services. Because there are some times where even the way you do your actual, your your work, the work itself, 
um, has distinct edges that need to be shaped deeply by your Christian convictions. Um, then there's also kind of an element of of transparency. And by this, I just mean, how does a Christian institution present itself externally to the world around it? Um, it's really important for, you know, mission statements and how you represent yourself on your website and the kinds of messaging you have when you engage with, with reporters or journalists in various settings. What does your social media presence look like, if that even makes sense to have one? So um, it's important that you're transparent about who you are, and there are some limited exceptions to that rule, but being transparent about who you are publicly and being consistent in how you apply your religious convictions across your organization. If you get those two big areas right, you'll be in a much better place, not only to be a respected kind of civic neighbor in your community, but also if you do end up getting drawn into a lawsuit, you'll have a much better um, and more solid basis for making a religious freedom claim in court than you would be if you're somewhat inconsistent. And I can explain more about why that would be, but consistency and transparency, those are two important ways uh, for organizations to think through in a very comprehensive way how they can be faithfully Christian. I want to emphasize one more thing. It is not just that this makes that transparency and consistency in terms of kind of putting those things into practice makes you more resistant to um, being engulfed in controversy or you know makes you better prepared for a lawsuit if that comes. But it's also a way to fulfill your mission, perhaps even more fully, because you're taking the religious grounding that gave your organization life and you're and you're trying to act in accord with it across the board. So it's also a matter of faithfulness. We encourage organizations to take that very, very seriously. And RFI has what's called the RFI Crisis Toolkit for Religious Institutions. And you can find it at rficrisistoolkit.com. And, um, and it's a great resource. It can be used to help. It provides a roadmap for organizations to kind of go through their, their governance, their HR policies, their external messaging, their communications efforts, and then their, um, their community partnerships, how they relate to the community around them. And so these three areas we think can be really, really helpful. And, and again, the toolkit just provides a roadmap for helping an organization to think through all of these areas and, um, and again, become more consistent and transparent in, um, in kind of bringing forth the religious character that they have. Yeah, that's really good. And I actually downloaded the institutional governance toolkit because I thought, man, these are the conversations that Monique and I have all the time with religious organizations. Um, people call us on the regular. Um, what do I do about policies? Uh, my employee handbook. Uh should I make a public statement on my website about our our policies or our positions related to marriage and sex and gender and, and how that connects to our mission? Or conversely, we've worked in a couple of situations where like, um, we don't want people to know our policies, but we have these secret policies that only the leadership team knows about. And we're trying to tell them, that's that's not a good plan. So it these are things that we see people wrestle with 
all the time. So I'm so glad that you guys have kind of put some some discussion prompts together for teams to be able to go through and think about, yeah, how are we going to handle things if the media comes to our door? How can we think about our hiring practices and that sort of a thing? So just like three critical questions that you ask in the religious or the institutional governance kit, you said, does your religious faith deeply animate your institution? That's that's an important question for people to ask is, especially as a more like social program type of thing. Has your institution adopted a statement of faith? This is vital and people would be surprised at how minimalistic many institution statement of faith is. That's something mm-hmm. we do all the time in encouraging people to make their statement of faith more robust. Does it have a mission statement? If so, does that statement articulate the Institute's mission in ways that are connected to its religious grounding? Yeah. Vital, vital questions. I appreciate the boldness that the toolkit is written. Um, It specifically says your institution should not approach this legal landscape passively. Religious institutions, especially those with orthodox moral teachings and witness, are under assault in American law and culture. Despite the existence of important protections, the courts do not always interpret the law as safeguarding morally orthodox religious institutions. To protect and maintain your identity, mission, and work, you should begin implementing practices concerning governance, human resources, and other areas that put you in the strongest possible position to benefit from all applicable legal protections. I I love that because it's, it's really in your face. It's like, hey, look, here's what's going on. This is what time it is. We're going to, you know, undergird you a bit to be able to get to that place. Yeah. But make no mistake about it. You really need to do this. Yeah. Yeah. And importantly, what you don't want to do is start to take these um, these recommendations, this roadmap and put it into practice when you're already engulfed in a crisis. Yes. You know, clear, clear thinking when the controversy is already, you know, knocking at your door is is extremely difficult. So we're really trying to encourage in this crisis toolkit, if you if you look at it carefully, it's take action before the crisis comes. Don't be anonymous in your community and have no one know anything about you until the day comes when you're engulfed in controversy. And now they look at you with suspicion as opposed to knowing you fully beforehand. Don't don't think about how would you engage with media when you've already got journalists banging on your door. It's very, very difficult. And the same thing with your your policies. Don't rewrite policy in a crisis. Rewrite it, rewrite it or reform it when you're clear headed. You can sit down with your team, be very deliberate in thinking through from convictions to action. How do we put this into practice in a way that can help us to be more faithful to God's calling on this organization? Do that before the crisis comes. So that's one area. That's policies. That's more of that upper level things that presidents may do with boards and things like that. What about for the lower level structure of an organization, the hiring, what can Christians do to protect themselves in the hiring process? Yeah. So one thing that that is laid out in the toolkit is to think carefully about, about job descriptions, about your recruiting process generally, the kinds of questions you would ask during interviews. And, you know, frankly, we're in a time where 
Christian teachings, as we've discussed many times already, even on this episode, Christian teachings on marriage, sexuality, the natural distinctions between male and female, um, abortion, other things. Uh, these are sources of great division in our society. And so it is probably worth Christian institutions that want to take those teachings seriously and remain, um, you know, kind of continue to act in accord with them to incorporate those teachings into their hiring process, into their job, the job descriptions they write. I mean, give candidates a fair opportunity to assess what you're really about. And maybe some of them will decide, I'm going to decline entering into this process. Like that, I can't affirm that. I can't go along with what this organization teaches. And I'm going to bow out of the process. Now, if you have someone who is a, a bad actor and they're aiming to deceive you intentionally, that's another set of issues. But allow the hiring process to do the good work that it's intended to do to get the right people for your team the right people who affirm historical Christian teachings on these matters. And you can do that by having, as part of the job description itself, the affirmation of certain core teachings that your organization wants to to lift up and, and kind of remain consistent with. So that's that's one part of it. Yeah, I think that's so important. We do that and have done that from day one at, at the Center for Biblical Unity, even for volunteers, yeah. um, that we have them in... Every volunteer, you know, has a job description of sorts. And in that is that they hold personal beliefs and convictions and life choices that are consistent with our statement of faith, our position statement, and our code of conduct. And that these are things that we are very upfront with people about, um, people who are contract workers, people who are formal employees, board members academic advisory council members so that not only our don't our donors know exactly who we are in ministry with but also that they know up front like this is what I am getting into and it's totally okay if people disagree with us that's fine it might not be a good fit for them and that's okay we won't have a, a judgment about that but we want to let people know up front hey, this is what we're about. And doing that from day one, we find people appear, appreciate that level of transparency. Yeah. yeah, well, I can say just based on what you've just described, your center would not be the best candidate for the toolkit because you've already contemplated so many of the of the provisions in it. I mean, it, all that you just named are, are key aspects of what the toolkit encourages because it's not just about it's not just about hiring. Some of it is about how do I engage with my own board, even your own donor base to make sure that they understand what you're all about um, and, and being being transparent and clear and, and helping them to understand, you know, kind of how you move from your, your core convictions into action in your organization. You all have done a great job with it. And that's what the toolkit aims to help other institutions achieve. Yeah, but it's so it's so vital. And I just can't tell you, we talk to people almost weekly about institutions who didn't have these things in place and then they started into drift or they had more progressive people that got hired because there weren't protocols in place and then now they're trying to turn the institution around and that's some of the work that that we do and that's hard work i think another thing is talking to people in their interview process so that it's fair for everybody. It's the same question for everybody. 
But, you know, asking about someone's personal testimony, how did you come to faith? What is your understanding of the work that we do? What is your understanding of our point of view? Um, And we even ask questions of how their faith as a Christian intersects in their work behavior and and habits. And um, that gives us insight into that person and their spiritual maturity. Like one question we ask every candidate, whether they're, you know, no matter how they're connected with us is, can you describe a time when you had to forgive a coworker? Tell us what happened. Tell us what you did and what was the outcome? You can learn a lot about a person's spiritual maturity yeah. from that question. We're not trying to pry into their their personal life or, you know, anything like that, but just how do they think about how they interact with their coworkers from a faith-based way? Um this is these are important things for for our institutions to think through. I mean, just the level of intentionality in your hiring process alone is um, is something that should be held up as a model. But the, the toolkit, I'll just say this kind of in a broad sense, the toolkit is meant to encourage that very high degree of intentionality that, that you just described in how you think about interviews, the kinds of questions you ask. Uh, the toolkit is trying to say, take that level of intentionality, apply it in the hiring process, yep. apply it in how you think about health insurance, apply it in how you think about your own public messaging and the profile of your organization on your website, kind of across the board. Because the more intentional you are, one, number one, most importantly, the more faithful you'll be. But you'll also have the back-end effects of, of just being more resilient if a crisis does come. You know, as we wrap up, can you help us think through, like, what are two of the most common mistakes you see Christian organizations make when dealing with progressive activists? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, one is is what I've what I've already covered. There's just not a there is not that level of intentionality of getting full alignment. So thinking of all areas of your organization and, and bringing them into alignment with your faith convictions. And this can be this can take lots of, of forms when it when it kind of. It comes it comes into uh, uh, a problem case arising in the context of an organization. So, you know, when you have a a Christian K through 12 school, for instance, and there have been a number of examples in recent years in which the school has not renewed a contract of a teacher or um, or has even let go a teacher in, in real time that has or a guidance counselor that has um, it's become public that they're in a same sex relationship and um, and either on social media or some other public announcement the individual is now is now clearly and publicly acting contrary to what the teachings of the school are. And then parents, many parents understandably would have concerns as as does the leadership of the school of having a teacher in front of the students who is is clearly living in 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 an incompatible way, out of alignment with what the school teaches. And then in another circumstance, the school has been much less diligent in um in addressing similar circumstances of a co cohabitating um, heterosexual uh, teacher that's living with someone of the opposite sex, they're not married. Um, they're they are also living contrary to what's happening at that school. And now you have this inconsistency that's that's clearly a problem. And when the school claims, no, we're not actually in the first instance 
discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation, but rather on the basis of sexual conduct. Like sexual orientation wasn't really at play. But then, of course, the opponents would say, but you didn't, you haven't applied that equally. You haven't been careful in your application of it. And so it just, it's, it causes all kinds of problems. Um, the other, the other thing that is a common error that I think institutions make all the time is one that you alluded to moments ago, and that is not being forthright, wanting to kind of keep your head down and not um, in your messaging, in your um, various areas of kind of the public profile of your organization, not being clear about what you're about. And um, that can cause all kinds of problems. I mean, there have been Christian universities who haven't been clear on these matters. And then a, a crisis comes. There are students who are agitating on campus to have rules changed around, you know, kind of campus expectations around sex or marriage. And then the school finds out that, you know, a third or half of its faculty actually agree with the students. And, and they haven't done the work of kind of being clear about what they are about until it's far too late. And then they have people on the inside who are actually against the institution itself. And, and so that, that whole idea of kind of taking very seriously the true repre um, faithful representing of yourself publicly so that people know what you're about. And a lot of, a lot of institutions just don't do that still, even today. You're saying a lot there, <laughs> but that's another show. Yes, but that is very, very accurate to, is. to our experience as well, is um, often institutions wait until there's a crisis and then they find themselves in a situation and then they have to fire someone, but there's inconsistency in how policies have been applied and then all of a sudden they find out, oh, wow, we've actually hired a third of our staff for progressive and it's a mess. Yeah, because there's something in the hiring practice where the actual faith of the individual is divorced from the application process, from the life choices. From, yeah, the, yeah, it's all divorced. And so I'm looking at this person as my employee. And then, you know, their Christianity will come alongside because, of course, they're a Christian. We're a Christian institution. But in the long run, their version of Christianity is much different than the historically orthodox version. Yeah. So once again, we just want to encourage everyone watching this. Please share the stream with your pastor, with your Christian school administrator, your pregnancy resource uh, president. You know, you're, if you're connected to a food pantry in your area, please talk to them about you know, the faith-based leaders in your area, please talk to them about these issues and share this resource with them. Thank you so much, Nathan, for coming on and talking to us. And thank you for the work that you guys are doing there. Yeah, it's been a very good conversation. Very helpful. Thanks so much. It was great to be here. Yeah, it was great to have you. Thanks. Okay. Wow. That was, it was good. It was. It, it, he's, He's basically saying all the things you and I have been saying, but it's. But he has a whole institution. He has a whole, well, he has okay, a whole he has institution and a toolkit, friends. Bunch of okay, people with PhDs. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And so, because he has an institution, a toolkit, and a bunch of people with PhDs, we say go and check out the Religious Freedom Institute yeah. and refer it to religious leaders and people who are not religious leaders because you don't know who has influence or has the ear of somebody else yeah. who is a place of influence. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. And I, I think that something you and I have talked a lot about when we get on the Zoom with leaders is you also have to kind of know when it's time to part ways with people. Mm-hmm. And you might have to get some outside consultation and some help, some legal help as to how to do that. And that might be lessons learned for policies going forward. But in our experience, the only way to turn it around when there's been progressive drift is you're going to have to figure out some ways to, to you know, part ways with people. Mm-hmm. And that's hard. It is. It's very hard. It is. But we need to remember one, our mission and the values of the organization and all that. But we also want to make sure that the organization is around to continue their mission, to continue to proclaim, to um, continue to evangelize and to stand on the truth of scripture. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been a great conversation. I have a blog post coming out. I think it's coming out in March. It's called like five podcasts to help you hire better. And it's, I'm putting all the, the conversations we've done publicly in one place to help people be able to resource their leaders. So this is going to be the fifth part of that. But I've done a number of conversations on hiring issues and things to think about from different points of view. And so watch for that blog post coming soon. And I we really sincerely hope that you will share this content with with others because these are very important issues. Yes, I agree. <laughs> you agree. I didn't know it was coming. Like, oh, look at her writing a blog post. Okay. You guys, thank you for being with us, and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.